I'll probably start by going back to um, a few thoughts that came to me just when we were saying and sharing prayers this morning, which always seems to me the most significant thing that we do in the whole morning, honestly. Uh, it's such a an important time for me in terms of clarifying what what my heart feels happiest doing, which is wishing well in a mood to, in a mood that remembers that there are people out there, not myself, with stories in pain that I could think about and wish well, and that that feeling of concerned connection is the most important and most satisfying feeling I know. So I want to come back to that in a minute. But I want to tell you, I want to start by telling you and uh, and Greg why this was the, a good day to come and why I decided to do these next four weeks as uh, an overview of what the Buddha taught. I had an email exchange this week with a, a friend who um, is one of the founders of New York Insight in uh, New York City. And uh, we've always had an agreement that when I, if I came to New York City, I would tell her in advance and maybe they could schedule me in. And I could teach an evening for New York Insight. And I will be there next June for some unrelated event. So I let them know and we set up an evening. And she, and she wrote back and she said, oh, good, what do you want to call it? And I said, well, how about call it? She and I are both going to be, she'll be 70 years old this next month. I will be 70 years old next July. A third friend of ours who is a Buddhist teacher in New York City was just 70 years old. So this is the year of the 70-year-old women. So I said, uh, why don't you call it, I'd like to be start this year by teaching everything that I know. What did I learn in 70 years? So. I said, it's a little grandiose, but maybe I don't know that much, you know. There is that possibility. But you get to be able to say what you actually know. And, and in fact, one of the things that I've been thinking about is that I can tell what I know in less words than I used to be able to tell what I know. It got simpler somehow. But in a sort of a moment of, of uh, flourish, I said, uh, she said, what, do you want to, what should we call your evening? So I said, uh, well, why don't you call it all the practices I know, mindfulness, metta, and paramita practice, and what they have to do with a happy life. So I thought that was a good title for a... So she sent me back an email, and she said, do you want to elaborate on that a little bit? <laughs> I, th- I thought it was actually pretty elaborate, and it's just, a, you know, it's an evening talk. What can you say about what you're going to say about that? Now, actually, I will write back and write three sentences about it, but... But in a sense, I began to think about, I could do it in an hour's talk. I'm planning to do it now in over four hours, over four weeks, because I really want to talk about what did the Buddha teach as I understand it now. Uh, I'll tell you in the course of this what's my favorite books, what do I think are, are still the favorite all-time books about that, what the Buddha taught by uh, uh, Rahula Wampala, remains probably one of my favorite books. It's an old book. Um, I want to talk about what did the Buddha teach and what parts of it actually 
feel exactly right to me? What parts of it do I not so much resonate to? What parts do you have to believe? One of the conversations that's been a part of the conversation between myself and my colleagues for many, many years uh, is what do you have to believe? What do you have to believe? Well, I'm going to finish another sentence. I'll come right back to you. What do you have to believe? Because what I said, I'm going to teach what the Buddha taught. I want to teach about mindfulness practice. I want us to do mindfulness practice. I want us to have questions about mindfulness practice back and forth from you and talking about practice. I want to teach about metta practice and, have, and do metta practice and have questions. I want to talk about paramita practice and talk about that and talk about exercises for that. And this morning I also thought I should add, talk about cultivating spiritual power, which is one of the lists and one of the, one of the, one of the lenses through which it's possible to see all of what the Buddha taught. Because each of them is a, is a, is a lens. Uh, each of them is a perspective. They're not different from each other. It's like looking at what the Buddha taught and seeing it from this view or this view or this view. It's a perspective. So that's what we're going to do for the next four weeks. So ready, set, go. We have started. Um, and this is so. And, and I was in the middle of the sentence of saying, my friends and I have talked about what do you have to believe in order to be uh, a, a qualify as a Buddhist. And is there a certain moment at which okay, now you're a Buddhist? Or, uh, and in fact, it, when I tell you a little bit more today about the history of Buddhism and how it spread. Um, you'll see that there isn't Buddhism. There are Buddhisms. And uh, if you go in our bookstore, for instance, you'll see a fair display of the different Buddhisms. And you can see it in the Buddhist art that's in in the different representations of the Buddha and the different artifacts. And I actually love to go in there. There's so many artifacts in there that we don't use that are not this particular lineage of Buddhism, but they're beautiful, and beautiful pictures of deities that I don't actually know very much about, but that are sacred and wonderful. And so what we've talked about, uh, since each of these Buddhisms comes with a story about uh, how that lineage came to be and uh, miracle stories about that lineage, they each come with a different perspective of what's important so what we've talked about, my friends and I, is what do you have to believe? What do all Buddhists believe? So I'm going to come to what do all Buddhists believe, and I'm going to ask you first about whether you saw the article in the op-ed piece. I think it was Monday in the New York Times by Tenzin Gyatso, the Dalai Lama. I meant to bring it this morning. I didn't, but I remember what I want to tell you about it. Two things. First of all, it's, uh, it uh, says the, the title is something like uh, Can Religion and Science Coexist or something. And you know where it says the name of the author? It says Tenzin Gyatso. And then if you look down at the end of the, par- the article, it says Tenzin Gyatso is His Holiness the 14th <laughs> Dalai Lama. He's supposed to be the 14th incarnation of Avalokiteshvara, the Bodhisattva of Compassion. But it's signed Tenzin Gyatso on the top. It's very, it's very, it's very lovely. I like that a lot. Um, and one of the things he tells about is his own uh, current, he starts with the own, his own current research that he's doing with uh, uh, neuroscientists, which you probably have read about, been in magazines, it's certainly been in the Shambhala Sun a lot, 
where over a period of years now, uh, probably a decade more, he has been meeting first with psychologists as far back as 20 years ago. I can remember being at a conference with psychologists and more recently with neuroscientists. So the first discussions were about how do emotions work and how do we understand it. And now really talking about how does the brain work. It's a different, it's a different discussion. And, and now with uh, the scientific methods that are available to do uh, scans of the brain while people are meditating. Uh, I told you a couple of weeks ago about having gone to a laboratory in, um, I guess the laboratory was in Gainesville where they were showing about doing scans of brains in big um, uh, uh, magnetic resonance machines. But uh, talking to scientists there and in Los Angeles about the ways in which people are put into scanning machines and then asked to think about something, asked to think about someone they love a lot and a certain part of their brain or lights up in fires, and then asked to think about a particular political candidate or shown a photo of a particular political candidate, <laughs> and a whole other side of the brain lights up, and, that, and they know that certain sides of the brain are really connected to pleasant and relaxed feelings in the body, and other parts of the brain are connected to unpleasant and unrelaxed feelings, and, and that the, those kinds of feelings are usually associated with different kinds of... Uh, uh, stress hormone release in the body, which causes all kinds of deleterious effects and illness. And so we're at an amazing edge in really being able to understand that in a sense you are what you think, or you, you, you do create your life with your thoughts. Mind is the author of all things, is the first line of the Dhammapada. And you can take that as a metaphor or but you can say that really, it's we create our lives with our thoughts. We create our reality in a certain way. How much the 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 science that's very interesting to me now, which I'm just really getting into reading about, is how many things we don't see, how many things I don't see. When I look around uh, on an airplane or a boarding lounge, I was thinking about this yesterday, recently. And and uh, reflecting about you look around, you look around, you look around, and you don't think about every single person that's there. You think about you look around until your mind catches something that someone is doing that meets something in you that says, "Oh, I know about that." Person is reading a magazine that I read, or person is doing such and such, or person is wearing some kind of clothing that catches my attention. But there's something about them that catches something about me. I think about how much I miss in the world, because I, I you know, I'm, and you know, not in a bad way that it's a mistake. I mean, but how little we probably all miss because we're programmed to see a certain amount and programmed to not see the rest of it. It's just amazing. Anyway, back to Tenzin Gyatso. He was making two points. He told the first. The, well, actually, he was making two points. One, he said, "I'm tremendously interested in what we can learn from the neuroscientists about how the brain works, and if it confirms our understanding of why meditation works in the way it does to produce salubrious states, good, healthy, happy states of mind, that'll be great. And if it shows that it does it some other way, we'll have to." change how we understand what we're doing. 
Not we'll change what we're doing, we'll change how we understand it. And he told a story about when he was a child, uh, having got a young boy, having gotten a telescope and looking at the moon. Do you remember this? He looked at the moon and he saw that the moon was a rock up there with craters on it. And he had been thinking, because this was part of the Buddhist literature that he'd read, that the moon is a luminous body, like the sun, that illumines by its own light. You know, if you actually, if you read Genesis chapter one, uh, chapter one, verse probably five or six, and God put two luminous bodies in the sky, one big one to illuminate the day, and another lesser light to illuminate the the night. So it was some period of time when people discovered that both of those luminous bodies were not luminous bodies, that one of them is emitting light and the other one is reflecting light. So he said, so I went to my teachers and I said, hey, it says that the moon is a luminous body radiating light. And it says here, he said, we'll have to change this. This is a mistake because it's a rock. And the sense of it was that it just makes so much sense. If you figure out you made a mistake, you fix it. You know, you don't remain stuck in a certain doctrine. And his whole article was about the way that uh, religious beliefs can live happily in a scientific world. Because the fundamental religious belief is the capacity of the human heart to forgive and to live in wholesome alliance with other beings in this world and to share, and that it's a scientific fact that people feel better and are healthier when they are companionable and compassionate and friendly. They do better than when they're angry. You can prove that scientifically, and you can prove it anecdotally. He says there's nothing that science can prove that would negate that as a religious belief, that human beings can live together in in a good way. I actually think it's true about all of the religious traditions and lineages that I know something about, that the core teaching is uh, a fact about, uh, is a teaching about human beings. Love your neighbor as yourself, turn the other cheek, uh, forgive people. They don't know what they're doing when they're doing something hurtful. Those are the core teachings of, of Western religion and Eastern religion. The, the rules of behavior uh, of all the religious traditions that I know about uh, are more or less the same in all the traditions. Uh, Houston Smith, uh, in uh, The Religions of Man, which is really one of the all-time very best books, if I were going to start to learn about Buddhism now, I'd really start with The Religions of Man. It, it's not about Buddhism, it's about Buddhism and Christianity and Judaism and Hinduism and Taoism uh, and Islam. And uh, in an amazingly short space, it's a little book, he has said so much about each of those religious lineages in such a, uh, an appreciative way about all of them and really taught the major aspects of all of them. It's at least 30, maybe 40 years old now. It's sold millions of copies. It's the best religion book. And in the beginning of that, he makes that very point. He said, every religious tradition that endures 
has a list of rules about how people uh, would be best served if they followed those rules. And that the rules are pretty much the same as our precepts. Don't harm people. Don't take what's not yours. Be careful about what you say. Don't lie. Don't, don't, don't say untruths. Uh, they all call for people to restrain themselves and to think about what would be the wholesome response here. They all, I think, uh, recognize the fact that human beings, uniquely among animals, have a space in between their impulses and their responses. You know, that we don't really, we can train animals to do a certain thing, train dogs to stay uh, or to do different kinds, even train all kinds of animals to do different kinds of tasks. And they do them because they're trained with rewards. It's, I don't know that they, my sense, even, even when I, uh, when I see the guide dogs, which are so marvelous, my, my daughter has a, a, a guide dog, breeding dog, and so I know something about them, and they're so wonderful to watch. And I think to myself, I don't know if this dog feels good about what it's doing. It's doing what it's doing, and it and you know it's been trained, and it's a marvelous thing, and it was trained to be helpful in this way, and it's a marvelous thing. But I don't know if the dog has personal pleasure out of having brought somebody across the street. You need to be a human being to be able to know. I remember when my mother-in-law was in an old folks home at the very very end of her life because she needed a certain amount of nursing care that we couldn't do. Uh, she took the greatest pleasure in reporting to me when I visited her you know, each week several times. She would give me a list of what she did there during the week, which wasn't very much, but she'd say, you know, Mrs. So-and-so, she can never find her room. I always take her back to her room after lunch. <laughs> that what we take pleasure in at the end of the life is who can we help out to do something else? And, and I felt really good about that was that she could figure out that not only would she have pleasure apparently in helping Mrs. So-and-so find her room, but she had a pleasure afterwards in telling me that she helped Mrs. So-and-so. And And probably in the same way that two-year-olds or five-year-olds say, well, let me think, four-year-olds as I shared in in snack time today. So maybe they had a pleasure in the sharing, but they're certainly having a pleasure in telling you that they shared in the snack time because they know now that you will tell them, I'm so proud of you, you shared in the snack time. So it get, it's like generosity rewarded. So in a certain sense, the basic teachings of Buddhism aren't different from these other lineages. And, uh, however... The cosmology of Buddhism is different, and the story of Buddhism is different, and the way the Buddha comes to be able to, the way the Buddha teaches the transformation of the heart from impulsive response to kindness is how we teach here. That's the basic compendium of what the Buddha taught. I think it's probably true that any other religious tradition will say, we share with Buddhism that notion that Tenzin Gatsu just laid out in the New York Times, that religions are for training the heart to kindness and compassion in this very crowded, resource-strained world. And they would have their own story that they tell. This is how we came to be this religious tradition. And their own techniques 
for training the heart to compassion. Because I think that that's actually what the Buddha taught, the training of the heart to seeing clearly in order for the compassionate response to manifest, in order to live a happy life. I think that's probably why I got the email from New York, because I've been a little glib, mindfulness, metta, and paramita practice, and what it has to do with a happy life. It has everything to do with a happy life, but you have to make the jump from all of those practices clear the mind so that we see the amount of suffering in the world. The fact that everybody is working so hard at trying to make themselves comfortable. Let's go back and talk just for a minute about when we uh, said our communal prayers this morning. There isn't a right or a wrong way to do it, but I notice, I feel, somebody I know in this room said a name of a person in his family, and I didn't know that that person was sick. And I realized that my heart at that moment goes, oh, you know, it just listens to everybody else and feels, oh. And then you hear a name of somebody you know. You think, oh. And I think, oh. And I think I want to talk about that because when we talk about metta practice in a few weeks, we'll talk about how important it is, our individual connections in the world, because they teach us how everybody else's individual connections are precious to them. That if we're really, if I am thinking I want to be able to teach myself in all circumstances to have a good heart, I have to remember that everybody is doing what they're doing because they think it's going to make them happy. They think it's the right thing to do. And their people are as precious to them as my people are to me. That when they think about their people, their heart goes, oh, also. And I thought about as people say, so-and-so my father, so-and-so my sister, so-and-so my brother. You know, that we are just so connected in all of those ways. We'll come back to that next week when we when we do metta practice, which is based on recognizing connections and starting with what's dearest to you and the recognition that this person is so dear to me and then trying to really take that feeling in the heart that comes up around recognizing dearness and and work on just keeping that feeling it's not liking everybody in the same in the world as much. We don't know them as personally. It's not about making everybody equal in our uh, affection or attention. It's about keeping the heart equally loving. Anybody think you say, "How could I love everybody in the whole world?" Well, that doesn't seem to me as so much of a possibility as how could I completely love. You see how the difference is between loving, com- loving the complete world or completely loving? And completely loving. I probably remember the people I know most, but my heart would be in a good shape. One of the things, by the way, that is uh, becoming always more clear to me, probably at some point, maybe if I get to be 80, I'll give a one-sentence Dharma talk, <laughs> and that sentence at 80 will be, I am always the immediate and principal beneficiary of my own benevolence. When I think somebody, I just made that up, but I think it's true. Actually, I channeled that, but I think it's true. (laughs) But it's actually true, and I think about it more and more, that it is not behalf of anybody else, it's on behalf of myself, 
that I am trying to keep myself remembering that there's people to care about so I can care about them. So I was listening to everybody's connections, my this, my that, my father, my mother, the fact that we're connected. In a way, I think it's the fact that we're connected to my father, my mother, my sister, my brother, that get, that, the, and that we learn the, that, that connectiveness. This, I'm not making this up, actually. This is a hundred-year-old discovery uh, by a sociologist named Emil Durkheim who, said, who discovered that in cultures where uh, family ties were the strongest and extended families were very strongly connected or kinship groups were very strongly connected, the suicide rate was much lower than in other societies, that they were directly proportional to the amount of emotional ballast you had in this, in, in this, in this lifetime. The number of people who cared about you. You know, when I got my email this morning very early from my friend Bart's wife, Marianne, and says, you know, Bart made it, he's great, he, he, I'm bringing a blender to the hospital to blend him something better than this hospital food, he's going to be fine. I see the numbers of people who got that email, you know, that, you, that Marianne has pushed a button, and a ton of people have gotten that same email about Bart. So all around there are a whole bunch of people rejoicing that somebody made it yesterday. I think that really what the Buddha looked at was the fact that we will be in this life separated from everything that's dear for, to us unless we separate first, that all of our life will be a series of losses of our own youth and health and vigor and vitality, and that there's a way to know that without making life, um, without, without resenting life for being that way, without struggling with that, so, the way that life is, you could really know th- how things truly are. And you think, well, that would be discouraging. People talk about the Buddha's principal teaching as old age, sickness, and death, and they say, well, that's a really depressing kind of a religion, old age, sickness, and death. But in fact, to be able to see, really, this is the way life is. How can we be anything but kind? Why would we want to miss any moment of it? You know, go from Tenzin Gyatso to the Buddha to Mary Oliver, saying, what are you going to do with this one wild and precious life? Is there something I would rather do today than be in love with my life? or care about it, make things important. I think it's possible to read. uh, This morning I was reading in anticipation of being here some of the early uh, suttas about the Buddha. And uh, I was trying to find one about old age, sickness, and death that was uh, uh, not so dreary to read. Without success, actually, so I'm talking to you about it. <laughs> but it's just because it's old-time writing, and it's the style of the teaching. I'll tell you about the Buddha instead. So let me see if I can do this in a brief overview. This is the compendium. Once upon a time, 573 years before the birth of, 
before the beginning of the common era, or about then, according to legend, there was born in a, to, to a family in the Sakya clan in northern India uh, a child uh, who soothsayers saw was going to be a person of great distinction. One of the legends said, uh, says that he told his father that he would either be a, a great political leader, a king, or a great uh, religious leader. In that particular legend, it says his father wanted to protect him from being a religious leader. We preferred him being a king and uh, protected him, therefore, from any kind of uh, awareness about the inherent um, uh, truth about life, that things age, that, they, uh, that they're only here for a certain period, that things age, and if they're lucky, and get old and get sick and die. So according to legend, he was protected by his parents from seeing any of those kinds of existential truths that cause people to begin religious vocations. All of us, I think, at some point or another, thought to ourselves, what are we doing here? And what about this whole thing? Since it's a one-way trip, in life, Jack likes to read a a, 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 a fantasy. Carries it, I think he carries it around with him because he reads it off. And he always seems to have it around. We should live life backwards. First, we should start off old with a gold watch. And have you ever heard him read that one? And come back and back and back and back and back. But the truth is, we don't. We start at this other end. We just develop a certain skill set and get it together, and then more or less the body starts falling apart if we last that long and if there isn't some intervening accident. That particular awareness that life is fragile, first of all, first of all, life is finite, and second of all, fragile. You know, I, there's a line in a poem that I like very much, that says, now of my threescore years and ten, comes from a biblical reference, and that's how many years we get, threescore and ten, seventy years. But who knows if he gets seventy years? My grandfather said after he passed seventy, he said, now this is extra, so it doesn't count. I don't have to worry anymore, because I did that, and, you know, so this is extra. I'm not supposed to have this anyway, so it doesn't matter. And he made it to 98. Now, maybe it was the attitude about... Uh, I think it was actually good genes as well, but uh, but we don't know three score and ten. We do every single time I pass, and you pass on the freeway, some accident, or there's a report, there's a, an accident with a fatality in the South Bay at such and such an intersection. Helicopters are on the scene and rescue vehicles. So you should take alternative traffic, and we're recommending this or that highway. And the truth is. They're supposed to do that. That's why the traffic people are on the radio. They're not supposed to have a period. You know, I think to myself, how would it be if the radio announcer at that point would say, let's now take a moment of thinking about that person or their family? But they can't do that. They have to tell you what alternative traffic routes. And the truth is, if they were going to take a moment of thinking about that person's family, we would have to be silent from now on because somebody's family is being bereaved every moment if not on the freeway someplace else 
if not on a freeway, someplace else. Somebody is having someone knock on the door, you know, tell them some bad news or phone. Did I tell you the story ever about teaching in the, probably did, teaching in the retirement center in, uh, uh, up in Santa Rosa? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I tell you that story? Yeah. Yes, no. 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 I'll tell you the story because we, we're doing what the Buddha taught. I got invited, so that you have to bear with me. I got invited <laughs> to teach at a retirement center in Santa Rosa, a very nice place. Uh, come and teach about Buddhism to the library club. And there's one of those extensive retirement centers where you can move in and live in independent housing, then you live in a less independent and less independent and less independent. And um, So when I came for this meeting with the library club, and I, and I was I was following directions, I went to the main building where the dining room is, and you go past the dining room, go down to the corner to the library club, and as I walked down the hall, I realized that there were hospital rooms on either side with glass walls so that the nurses at the nursing desk can see in through the windows and see who's in the beds. And you realize that this is the ultimate place. You move into this retirement center, and then you end up in these in these intensive care rooms. And anyway, for some reason, we're using the room at the end of this hall. So I walked down. And I'm aware of these rooms, and I come in, and we're just sitting down, library club, maybe 10, 15 people, and myself, and uh, some man is standing in the doorway, and uh, the uh, one of the people in the group says, come on in, we're just about to get started. And he says, um, a woman down the hall just had a heart attack. And they said, well, that's all right, just come in, you know, they'll take care of it, come in, we're just about to get started. He said, they're calling the paramedics. He said, well, that's good. And the paramedics, you know, know what to do. He he came in and he sat down. And uh, uh, I'm thinking to myself, I'm also looking down the hall, because now I see the paramedics are rushing in with a, a, a stretcher bunch of paramedics. I see a lot of people coming in and out of the room down the hall. And I'm thinking about starting, and the librarian is trying to get my attention, and she said, um, oh, I, I remember what happened. Uh, oh, here, the librarian said, uh, uh, well, we're really interested in uh, 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 what you have to say. So I, then I'm looking down the hall, and uh, somehow I said something about the fact that the paramedics, they said, oh, the paramedics come every day. It's nothing. The paramedics come every day. I said, how is it to live in a place where the paramedics come every day? They said, oh, you get used to it. You don't notice it, they said. Um, they said, besides, they usually don't put on the siren when they come. And someone else said, well, the reason they don't put on the siren is because the person is usually dead. That's why. Oh, oh, so I'm thinking to myself, and... Uh, Looking down the hall, I see now they're taking out that paramedic stretcher without anybody on it, so I'm thinking, well, that person probably died. Maybe I should say something about it. Like, I, mean, I re- was reminded of this whole story because I'm talking about on the highway, should the, should the traffic people say, we'll take a moment. So the librarian said, um, 
Is Buddhism a religion or a philosophy? So I think she was really trying to get me back to talk about Buddhism. I thought I actually was talking about Buddhism, about how is it to live in a direct confrontation of the fact that people die every day and for different reasons, and how do you cope with that? They say, oh, one of the men had said, it's nothing. He said, carpe diem, that's what I think, live the day. <laughs> so I also think carpe diem, but how, you know, because the heart really... The end of the story is that I taught, and we did some mindfulness, we did some metta, we did the prayers of, you know, mention whoever you have in mind. Nobody mentioned the people down the hall. I thought about whether I should or not. And then I decided there's always people down the hall, this hall, any hall, like at any moment. And a week later, uh, the, the, uh, a week later, I had a phone call. I, I walked, I said goodbye. My friend Tova, who invited me, Vivian, the librarian, very gracious in their goodbyes. My friend Tova called a week later. She lives there. And she said, Vivian died. And uh, she said, you know, I feel really bad. It's not that I don't know that this happens. It happens all the time. But Vivian was my friend. And it's different. So every day, all over the world, and some people are friends, and how to be able to know that and still remember that the Buddha was called the happy one, that what he taught liberated the mind from grief. I do want to read you one line and then tell you the rest of the Buddha's story. This was a very nice line. And Buddha really is talking about ignorance as being what really um, makes it impossible for the mind to relax, to appreciate the preciousness of life, to respond with a heart that's loving and gracious, and to enjoy, for however long one lives, the possibility of living in generous connection with other people. It's not that we just do that naturally, that the ignorance needs to be dispelled so that we see what's important. And the fear system needs to be dismantled or at least quieted so that we're able to express what's important. He talks about the practice being the dispeller of confusion. says, for many people, ignorance prevents them from recognizing the vicious nature of their condition. This is not the Buddha talking. This is the editor of this book talking. Talking about what the Buddha taught. Uh, Recognizing the vicious nature of their condition, their condition of ignorance, so that they cannot even discern the tracks of a path to deliverance. Most beings live immersed in the enjoyment of sensual pleasures, Others, driven by the need for power, status, and esteem, pass their lives in vain attempts to fill an unquenchable thirst. Many, fearful of annihilation at death, construct belief systems that ascribe to their individual selves, their souls, the prospect of eternal life. A few yearn for a path of liberation but don't know where to find one. It was precisely to offer such a path that the Buddha has appeared in our midst. 
So the Buddha was born, according to legend, of parents who protected him from those existential truths that everybody here has figured out by now. You know, often people think it was when I went to college, it was when I left home, it was when my grandfather died, it was when my twin died, it was when this happened or that happened or uh, my marriage failed or my... Often in a moment of loss, we are really connected to an awareness of the ubiquitous nature of loss, that things change and everything will be lost and that everything that's present and pleasant is temporal and that happiness is very fragile. If I were going to ask you how old were you when you had a sense of really this is, there's, a, there's a complication with life. Life is complicated. It doesn't work out. We are, it's challenging and it's over so soon. If I were to ask who here knows that, everybody would put their hand up, okay, right? Do you think you began to think about it before you were 10? Okay, let's see, before 10, before 20, before 30, after 30, after 40. Different, I mean, there's no right answer. There's no right answer. It's a shocking awareness whenever it happens. I actually also don't think it happens once. I think it keeps re-happening all the time. You know, that we get our sort of equilibrium about it. We can get up in the morning even though that's true. And every once in a while we get it, it's really true. Whoa. Who was it that I read last week? The author, oh... Tamara quoted him. Wait, 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 wait. William Saroyan, who said, I always, I, th- I, I, I always got it that everybody always dies, but I never thought it was going to happen to me, actually. <laughs> okay. Something like that. My case is going to be an exception. So he has the story of the Buddha in three sentences. He grew up. I don't know that he grew up in such a protected environment or whether that's a metaphor for his existential moment didn't come until his late 20s. I prefer to say that. In the meantime, he uh, married uh, He married a woman of his caste, and they had a child. His child's name was Rahula. Uh, when that child was uh, young, there, there, is, there was some existential moment in which he realized that it is true that all beings, if they don't die young, will age and will wither and will die, and that every, everything that depends on that, people will lose them, they will suffer loss, if their mind has not come to a contentment about this is true about all things, that all things change, that what is dear to us needs to be let go of, that uh, insisting that anything be otherwise is the, is suffering. And as people say, uh, craving is the co- cause of suffering. Craving is suffering. It's the tension in the mind that's the extra tension in the mind on top of the tension of grief or pain or sorrow. It's really important for me to keep thinking about and 
delineating for myself that not being in contention with life and not resisting it, not insisting that it be otherwise, in fact being able to say this is the way it is, does not preclude sadness and does not preclude even... uh, um, doesn't, it actually doesn't preclude anything. It actually doesn't preclude anything. I remember that from a few weeks ago. When, uh, actually, it was just months ago. It was just after Katrina happened. And um, I was visiting uh, my friends Martha and Joelle, who you hear about always in our prayers, as Martha, Martha continues to have treatments for her uh, pancreas cancer. And I was talking about being on my way to teach, and I said, I am so distraught about, not only about the the terrible loss of life and pain to people, but what this actually makes so clear about the, what clearly are situations of social inequality in our country, in our world, that made for uh, the amount of destruction and devastation and loss being as great as it was, and I said, I really can't teach because I'm furious. And it was Joelle who had that great line where she said, you know, it would be possible somewhere to be furious without having ill will. And it was a, just a, such a liberating line. I've been thinking about it since, that you can be everything without ill will. You can be furious and really roused to make a difference. You can be sad. You can be grief-stricken. And you can't be... And, and you can still... Not be mad at yourself. I'm not always good at this, by the way. You cannot be mad at yourself for doing that. You cannot be mad at whatever it was caused the situation. Not have ill will. Not have ill will. It's different. You can be mad. You cannot have ill will. I cannot... I can hold myself in kindness. I can hold other people in kindness. Even if I think they're responsible for the, for tragedies. If I If I... Add to my dismay and my, my, my alarm and my sadness. If I add to it ill will, I'll confuse my mind and I'll really poison my heart. I can do the same thing without the ill will. Now, I want to say I, I, can't, I could do the same thing. I can't always do it, but I could. That's the amazing thing about people, that they could. I can't always do it, but it's a possibility for human beings. So it brings us back to what we said before about the amazing, the amazing pivot point of the Buddha's teachings is that uh, it's possible for human beings to dispel ignorance, to come to a place of wisdom, and to act not automatically. That's the great thing that human beings can do. We can feel like doing something and not do it. That's an amazing thing. We can do that starting at age two. We can feel like doing something and inhibit the feeling of doing it. And in the beginning, you say, uh, you cannot hit your sister. You cannot take her toy away. Uh, And in the beginning, when you begin to cannot do it, you cannot do it because your mother will look at you reprovingly or your father will look at you reprovingly and you'll feel bad. And after a while... Magically, you take on that. You take on the understanding behind it, and you cannot do it because it's the wrong thing to do, and you can't hurt. Because that empathy, 
the because you care about your parent and you care about them caring about you and you discover that that relationship of care and consideration is precious and valuable that you begin to have relationships of care and consideration with other people then you care about other people as well I mean, when we see any of the news on TV or we read anything in a magazine, this person lost uh, lost their kin in, in this or that. And you think about immediately, how would it be if I lost my kin? So the Buddha had his moment of realization. And he realized that there, that there, that uh, human beings are have levels of suffering. They have the level of suffering, which is just being separated from what they love, which happens to everybody sooner or later, unless they're separated from us. It's plain dukkha. But what he was mostly talking about in terms of suffering was the level of suffering of the tension in the mind when it can't make peace with its reality when it cannot say, I wish it were other than this, but it's like this. It doesn't mean not doing anything. It means just making peace with this is a fact. Somebody wrote me in an email the other day. I had, uh, I had, uh, the, I had written something. I, I told them a story in which, um, about a conflict in which part of the debate was it's not fair. And she wrote back and said, probably it's not fair has caused more emotional <laughs> difficulty in the history of the world than any other three words. It's not fair. There's a lot of things that aren't fair. Uh, I talked to Martha the other day. I said, do you think it's, you know, do, do you have a sense why me? She said, well, not always. <laughs> she said, but sometimes I think, sure, why me? It's got six billion people in this planet. Why me with this pancreas cancer? Not everybody has cancer. Why should I have it? But, you know, then she said, after a while, you figure out, why not me? Some people have it. You know, Some people have this, some people have that, some people have something else. But the mind in the meantime thinks, it's not fair, it's not fair. So, Edie, what? Um, Mary Oliver yeah. spoke yeah. this week. And she read a poem that I would very much like to read because I thought of Martha and Joel, and I also thought of all of us and this question of, in the moment of this acute suffering, uh-huh. how do we keep an open heart? And then I was remembering what you said last week when your friend in New York yeah. wrote to you and really was talking about paying attention every moment. Yeah. Yeah. If we have a moment before you end, this poem really manifests. Okay, so what, wait with the poem, because in five minutes I'm going to tell you the whole rest of the story <laughs> of the Buddha so that next week we can do the practice of mindfulness. So, seriously, this is the story of the Buddha in five minutes. He went forth from his, this is called the going forth. Legend has it he left in the middle of the night. If He left. He went off, left his wife and child, and took up the life of an ascetic monk because among the four realities, four sights that he saw, either in person or in his mind's imagination, he saw the truth of old age, the truth of sickness, uh, the truth of death, and a, a vision, a specter of a monk 
a vision of a monk walking with peaceful visage, uh, which conveyed to him that it was possible to see all these truths about life and the fact that it's just what it is, uh, and still have a, 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 a mind that is peaceful and a heart that's loving and generous and ethical. Um, actually, it doesn't say that, but I, I actually think that's true. So he went forth. He, took, he became the student of first one and then an, the second of the most accomplished meditation teachers in his part of India. He spent three years with each of them. He became as adept at all their meditative techniques as they. Both of them, according to the story, invited him to stay and teach. He turned them both down with great respect. Because he said, I've learned all these amazing things. I've learned how to control my mind so that I can live on one rice grain a week, so that uh, I can sit out in a blazing sun, that my mind can be completely still. I have not learned the secret of why people suffer and the end of suffering. And he is talking about suffering in the sense of the extra tension in the mind that cannot accommodate to the truth of the moment. He's not talking about sadness. He's talking about suffering, which is a difference. He's not talking about pain. He's talking about suffering. We feel sadness because it's a pain in the mind and body. We feel pain in the body when, when we're hurt in a physical way. When the mind is hurt, it feels pain. Suffering is the extra tension in the mind when the mind confuses itself with resistance. When it's unable to say, it's like this. So he went off. He, didn't, he, he actually didn't say that answer when the mind confuses itself. He goes off to find the answer, leaving his two teachers, goes to Bodhgaya, sat down under, according to legend, under the tree in Bodhgaya, said, I'm going to sit here until I understand. And in the morning, uh, but through the watches of the night, he presumably saw clearly how the mind is, becomes, suffers because suffering exists because the mind becomes habituated to struggling with things that uh, either attract it and it hasn't have, it doesn't have or can't hold on to, or repel it, which it can't push away or avoid. That the mind, the mind that needs to have things other than how they are, suffers. It's the insatiable need to have things other than the way they are, not the wish that they were. There are many things that I wish were different from the way they are. The insatiable need to have them different. It's the mind saying, I cannot be happy unless things change. Um, It's funny, the liturgy that comes to mind is, Thy kingdom come, Mm -hmm. thy will be done. It's just, that's the way it is. It, uh, It can't be another way. We realize this is bigger than any of us. Having realized that, according to legend, he said um, he spent another 40 days, I think, consolidating his understanding, thinking about whether or not he would teach, thinking maybe ignorance is so pervasive I can't teach. There would be, there's no way to dispel the ignorance in the world. I sometimes think that when I see the state that the world is in now. And presumably he had another vision of... Um, angelic beings who came from other realms uh, that uh, 
really came to persuade him to go out and teach for the benefit of those people who would understand. And then he began a 50-year career of walking through India, founded a movement of followers, first monks and then nuns as well. The first five people that he met when he left Bodh Gaya were five ascetics with whom he had practiced before, who on seeing him said, there's uh, the Gautama, uh, Siddhartha Gautama, who left, who didn't do the hard practice. But then, according to the legend, they saw that he looked radiant in a new way, and they realized that he had understood something. And his first sermon, uh, a sermon in the Deer Park at uh, Benares, uh, was preached to those five uh, monks. And it's the sermon in which he lays out the Four Noble Truths that life is inevitably challenging because it's changing all the time, that uh, suffering is the result of insatiable craving in the mind, tanha, the inability of the mind to say, okay, it's like this, that the end of suffering, not the end of pain, but the end of suffering, is the mind's ability to say, okay, it's like this, and that that's possible, that peace is possible, and that there is a path to the cultivation of that peace. The path is the eightfold path of right understanding, right aspiration, right speech, right action, right uh, livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. And he taught them for the rest of his life. And he died when he was in his 80s. And he was called the happy one. Taught a lot about suffering, but really it was... When people asked, he said, I came to teach one thing and one thing only, suffering and the end of suffering. And really, in the, in the days of the Buddha, the ascetic life, the monk life, the life that had left behind worldly pursuits was considered the more noble path to cultivating those, that eightfold path, to developing the factors of the eightfold path. But here we are in this room, and none of us monks or nuns. Mm-hmm. But I actually think in my, myself, and maybe this is my way of making this all right for myself, that uh, the nun in me you cannot see, and that the renunciate vows I am continually thinking of taking, uh, retaking, that I'm continually retaking, are the vows of... Um, renouncing confusion, uh, doing the best I can to not confuse my mind, renouncing ill will as soon as I see it take up residence in my mind and heart. But uh, I think those are the vows that we've all taken. And uh, I think that that, that, that that message of the Buddha, that we could do that, I don't think actually that we get there that there's no there there, that there's a there here, and we get here over and over again. We'll keep getting here over and over again until the end of this life. And next week, we will uh, talk about mindfulness practice. The Buddha taught uh, mostly by parable, like Jesus. He went places and he told stories. But... uh, Amongst the things, the, the teachings uh, sermons that he gave, he
he taught the Four Foundations of Mindfulness, which is the basis of mindfulness practice, and he taught uh, the uh, uh, Metta Sutta, the teaching on loving kindness. And uh, we'll do them next. We'll do mindfulness next week and Metta the week after, and then we will do um, uh, Paramita practice the last week, because we'll do it. I think along with the Eightfold Path, because it's actually the Eightfold Path, which is how to live in the world, and Paramita practices how to live in the world. So, Edie, come up here so you can have the microphone and read. I need to leave just at 11 today because I have a, an appointment in Santa Rosa at 12, so I apologize to anyone who meant to stay and have a conversation. I will be here again next week. Um, This is a new poem just written this year. And as I think probably all of you Mary Oliver uh, followers and know, Mary dedicated every one of her books to her partner, Molly. This is entitled Oxygen. Everything needs it, bone, muscles, and even while it calls the earth its home, the soul. So the merciful, noisy machine stands in our house, working away in its lung-like voice. I hear it as I kneel before the fire, stirring with a stick of iron, letting the logs lie more loosely. You, in the upstairs room, are in your usual position, leaning on your right shoulder, which aches all day. You are breathing patiently, It is a beautiful sound. It is your life, which is so close to my own that I would not know where to drop the knife of separation. And what does this have to do with love except everything? Now the fire rises and offers a dozen singing deep red roses of flame. Then it settles to quietude, or maybe gratitude, as it feeds, as we all do, as we must, upon the invisible gift, our purest, sweet necessity, the air. And um, when I heard her read this last week, I didn't realize that Molly had died in August. So, as I was thinking of this poem and listening, Sylvie, I thought, isn't this an extraordinary example of Mary Oliver paying attention and of not being angry, not being contentious? Thank you, Edie. Uh, this is the first time I've seen a picture of Mary Oliver ever. So, there you go. Come and see Edie's book. And this is volume two.
This talk was given by Silvio Burstein at Spirit Rock Meditation Center on November 16, 2005. It is an offering of the Dharma Seed Audio.